Welcome to A Look Ahead. We're delighted you've decided to join us. We study the Sabbath School lessons as prepared by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And this particular series is entitled, In These Last Days, The Message of Hebrews. We have suggested before, and I will suggest again, that I believe that Paul was basically behind the writing of this book, and he apparently thought he lived in the last days. Well, this is Lesson 6 in that series for February 5 of 2022, entitled, Jesus the Faithful Priest. Jesus the Faithful Priest. Hmm. Well, let's see what that is all about. Let's pray. Our kind and wonderful Father, we know that there are marvelous things in store for us as we gain a place in the future heavenly Canaan. Now let us review what Paul has to say about the problems that people had in trying to get into the first Canaan, the difficulties that surround to them and surround us. May we learn to become more like you and understand exactly what it is that you're doing to help us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a very key verse that I thought we should add here that helps us to understand our study of Isaiah. That verse, however, is found back in Isaiah 59, verse 2. Jim? It is because of your sins that he doesn't hear you. It is your sins that separate you from God when you are when you try to worship him, American Bible Society. Yeah. Okay, you want to read that? The okay. gulf that existed between God and us was caused by sin. That's a little easier to read. <laughs> uh, the problem was compounded because sin always implied the corruption of our nature. God is holy, and sin cannot exist in his presence. So our own corruptive, corrupted nature separates us from God, just as two magnets in the wrong orientation repel each other. In addition, our corrupted nature made it impossible for human beings to obey God's law. Sin always involves misunderstanding. Human also be- involves. Also involves misunderstanding. Human beings sought, lost, lost sought of, lost of the sight. lost sight of the love and mercy of God and came to see him as wrathful and demanding. Adult Bible Study Guide for January 29. Okay, in this lesson we're going, we're going to try to evaluate the ways in which Jesus was like an earthly high priest as well as the ways in which he was different from an earthly high priest. So we should probably start off a big long list and say, okay, everything that the high priest in the Old Testament did, da-da-da-da. But we'll see if we can get those things. Think about that as we move along. And you can think about that too out there. What implications does that have for us when we are no lo- when we no longer offer sacrifices? Now, the things with the high priest, the, the majority of what the high priest did in ancient times, was to be dealt with sacrifices of one kind or another, killing animals and so forth. We don't do that. So what does a high priest do for us? What is the reason for saying that Jesus came in the order of Melchizedek? And, of course, the other question, which has been asked many times, who was that Melchizedek? Paul himself recognized that what he was going to try to explain is difficult. He accused his audience of being very immature in their understanding of the gospel so that they still had to drink milk and were not ready to eat solid food. 
They needed to have practice in distinguishing between good and evil. So what makes you capable of taking on the more solid food? You need to have practice in distinguishing between good and evil. That's not always easy. Satan will do everything he can to make his evil path, at least initially, look as close to God's path as uh, as it possible. And I, I illustrate that sometimes by talking about counterfeiters. And if you took a piece of paper about the right size and you said, okay, you give it to a fifth grader or, or even a first grader, five-year-old, and say, please, here's a dollar bill. I want you to copy. Here's a green crayon. I want you to copy it, copy it as careful as you can to make a dollar bill. And if you took that down to the store and tried to cash it, what would they say? They'd laugh. <laughs> they would laugh, exactly. But what if you had someone who had the right kind of machinery, the right kind of cloth paper stuff to print on, and had developed all the skills to make it look exactly like the real thing and you took it down to the store what would happen? They probably would cash it. They probably you might get arrested for counting. You might get arrested but if he was really good the, in other words the closer you, the better you are at counterfeiting the closer it looks to the original right? So that's the point we want to make here. These people that Paul is talking to needed to have practice and distinguish between distinguishing between good and evil. And the the passage here that's in question is found in Hebrews five, eleven through six three, and we'll be looking at that in a moment. And what about us? How can we move forward as Paul suggested to mature teachings? Paul began by making it clear that those ancient Old Testament priests did not accomplished what needed to be accomplished. Even the laws of Moses had proven inadequate because they could not make anything perfect. By contrast, Jesus is perfect, so he can provide a perfect sacrifice. Furthermore, he will live forever. He does not need to have someone come and take his place because he dies. He is alive. And he will be alive forever. I'm sure of that. But what is Jesus' actual role in heaven right now? And here's where we're going we're gonna to come to a kind of parting of the ways. And I, I want you to be aware of what, what we're doing here, what's going on here. One way to look at what Jesus is doing in the heavenly sanctuary right now is to go back in the Old Testament and the New Testament and see, you know, forgetting about the sanctuary for just a moment, look at what it says that Jesus is actually doing. Look at Zechariah 3, 1 to 5. Look at Daniel 7, 9 and 10. Look at Revelation and so forth. Look at what the Bible elsewhere says that Jesus is actually doing in heaven right now. The other alternative, which I understand why they're doing this, but our Bible study guide is taking the approach, well, let's carefully study what the priests did long ago and see what we can learn about that that's helpful to us right now. Well, I think it's, in my opinion, it's better to look at what we know Jesus is actually doing and seeing what that will teach us about the sacrificial system. As a, In other words, going forward instead of going backwards as in, our, in our looking. So I hope that makes sense to you. Let's just look at it as we move along here. The real question is, well, what is Jesus' actual role in, the heaven, right, in heaven right now? That is the real question with which we need to deal. 
The traditional Christian model suggests that God the Father holds up a very high standard and he is not happy with those who fail that standard. This is the traditional Christian model. Therefore, Jesus Christ has to plead with him to get him to accept us before we can be admitted to heaven. Is that a true and correct picture of God the Father? Why do we need someone to plead with God for us? Is that a daily necessity? Or is that do we need someone to plead with God yeah. for us? Do we? God is forgiveness personified. Does the Father need someone to plead with Him to forgive us? What is the difference between being a regular priest? Now let's get into some of these issues. What is the difference between being a regular priest and being a high priest? Can you mention one or two things? Well, the high priest is the only one that went into the sanctuary on the most holy place once a year. Okay, so in terms of that day of atonement ceremony, the primary person that was involved was the high priest. So that's at least one difference between the high priest and a regular priest. One very important point that distinguished the high priest from an ordinary priest was that the high priest needed to be chosen and set apart by God himself. As we saw clearly in Hebrews 1, Jesus Christ was set apart by God when he said, You are my son, today I have become your father. And that's not only in Hebrews 1, it's in Hebrews 5, verse 5 as well. So the high priest was supposed to be set uh, set up and appointed by God, but he certainly wasn't in the time of Jesus. Well, yeah, that's a good question. When did it change? I um, Was it at the time of the uh, Babylonian captivity? No. Well, that was a factor. No, but it was after that. It was long after that. Uh, let me just give you a very quick touch of that history. I'm working on that right now because it's fascinating to me. Um, in the days of the uh, Maccabees, about 160 years before Christ... A group of people, and apparently they were from some Levitical tribe. I don't know if they were descendants directly from Aaron or not, but um, when the uh, from when the um, Greek basically overlords that were ruling over them from Antioch up in the north and came down and tried to force them to worship in Greek ways. Uh, there were, the Jews split up into two groups. One group said, yeah, we should just Hellenize. We should just become like other peoples. We live in this world and that's the way it is and we should just, we should just melt in. The other group, and that group later fostered what were called the Sadducees. Uh, the other group said, no, we're never going to bow to anything unless we, we abide strictly by our Jewish traditions. And that's the group that later became the Pharisees. So there were this conflict, constant conflict going on between those who thought they should just, we should just get along with the rest of the world and do like they did, or those who believed that no, the only way we'll ever amount to anything is to go back to following our Jewish forefathers and the Bible and so forth and very strictly and, you know, the Pharisaical kind of approach. We don't have anyone that, that does that in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, do No, we? of course not. Don't have anyone that wants to compromise? And no. 
Don't have others so, that want to be strict. Yeah. Now, the world has been like that from day one almost. Anyway, so it turns out that obviously the ones who wanted to co- cooperate with the Greek god, the lords and powers and so forth like this, they became the ruling ma- the ruling group. And so they appointed from among themselves someone to be high priest. And it finally, by the days of Jesus, it got to the place where the family who could put up the, pay the highest price to the Roman government bought the privilege to be the high priest. And they got their money to pay those fees by the extortions they did in that marketplace that Jesus chased out of the, the, the temple courtyard. For stock exchange. Yeah, stock exchange, etc. Literally. Literally. <laughs> so I don't know if that helps you to understand that a little bit, but um, is Jesus pleading for us right now? What do we know about Jesus Christ and his prayers to his Father? There is clear evidence that every night Jesus would pray to his Father and plan the details of the following day. Sometimes those prayers would last all night. Look at, well, let me just show you. Look at Luke, Luke 6 verse 12. At that time, Jesus went up a hill to pray and spent the whole night there praying to God. So this is not something I made up, okay? But when when was it that Jesus experienced what we read about in Hebrews 5, verse 7? Hebrews 5, 7. In his life on earth, Jesus made his prayers and requests with loud cries and tears to God who could save him from death. That's from the Good News Bible. Okay, is that talking about his experience in Gethsemane? What do you think? If so, was it correct to say that God saved him from death? See, at the end of the verse there says, he requests with loud cries and tears to God, who could save him from death? Was he saved from death? Well, let me ask you a question out there. Think about this yourself. Would you be willing to die right now, even even a horrible death, if you know that if you knew for sure that three days from now you would go to heaven? An interesting thought. So is that uh, is is it correct to say that God could save him from death? He could have. In fact, ultimately we would say he did to the resurrection. We believe that Jesus died the second death, the death that is a result of sin and separation from God, the only source of life. And that that experiment was set up to demonstrate to us what happens when a person is separated from God. It's a absolutely horrible experience. Romans 6.23 and Genesis 2.17 prophesied that this was going to happen. But because Jesus was fully God, Satan could not keep him in the grave and he rose in his own power and came forth from the grave and returned to heaven. So what is it that Christ as high priest does for us on a daily and even hourly and minute-by-minute basis? Well, physically, God keeps us alive and facilitates every chemical action and reaction that takes place in our bodies. Acts uh, 17, verse 25 and 28. Spiritually, God is constantly trying to woo us and convince us to follow him so that we will not destroy ourselves. He forgives our sins, 
and helps us to stop committing them. God is the only one who can transform our lives by changing our thinking and behavior. We cannot do this on our own. Okay, well, there's two ways in which God is active in our lives every day, every minute, if we allow it, if we want Him to. Well, look at Hebrews 5, 5, and 6 again. Uh, in the same way, Christ did not take upon himself the honor of being a high priest. Instead, God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. He also said in another place, You will be a priest forever in the priestly order of Melchizedek. So now let's start to get into something. We're going to be, we're going to be struggling with this, uh, for a while, but let's, let's start to get into this issue of Melchizedek and how that's involved here. Does that imply that Jesus understands us better than the Father does? No. That would be a denial of God's omniscience. Jesus came to teach us about God, not to find out something about us that he did not know before. He needed to become human so that we could better understand him, not so that he could better understand us. And I can tell you that... That's a good... uh, uh, Yeah. Very yeah. important. I can tell you that there's a lot of people who feel that that's not true. That's just the opposite. Well, process theology. Yeah, that's that's what they're they're begging. And you want to look it up there in uh, like Google or whatever. It's they got a lot of really cr- weird stuff in process theology. Yeah. Well, let us look at several passages that might help us to understand the work Jesus is doing now in the heavenly sanctuary. We are living in the great antitypical day of the atonement following 1844. Now, we don't have time to go through all the math and the history and the uh, archaeology that supports this, but we know that reading Daniel 8.14 and followed up with events in Daniel 9, uh, 24 to 27 and Ezra and so forth, we can nail it down that that prophecy, that 2300-year prophecy began in 457 A.D. B.C. I'm sorry, thank you, B.C. Uh, the first 490 years took us down to um, that final week of, of Christ's life. The first three and a half years were his, his ministry here on this earth, and the next three and a half years from the death of Christ and his resurrection to the stoning of Stephen, at which time, what happened? Why is that important? God, God message to the Gentiles. God officially stopped working exclusively with the Jewish people and said, okay, now, and the Christians scattered out across the world to, to try to do their work. So that means, and, and if, then if you take the, the 490 years and you subtract it from the 2300 years, how many years do you have left? 1810. And then if you know that Stephen was stoned in A.D. 34, you add the 1810, you come to 1844. And that is the beginning, according to Daniel and Revelation, the beginning of the uh, Day of Atonement, the antitypical Day of Atonement, where the God begins to judge, do the final judgment. That means that in front of the onlooking universe, God is judging all mankind, starting from Adam and Eve, and working his way to our day and us. And I can remember as a child, and probably the rest of you can too, 
you better behave because you don't know what day is, is going to be your day for the, for the judgment to come up. While that is going on, the Holy Spirit and Christ are daily protecting us from the advances of Satan and working to help us become more like them. That's Romans 8, starting with 26 through 31. As we have noted already, Jesus has told us that we do not need anyone to plead on our behalf to the Father. That was our John 16 thing we're going to look at again right now. Jesus himself said he will not plead with the Father for us. John 16, 25 to 27. Jesus said, I have used figures of speech to tell you these things, but the time will come when I will not use figures of speech, but will speak to you plainly about the Father. Now, if we believe, as as we have suggested in the lesson so far, that the main purpose of Christ coming here to this earth was to teach us clearly about the Father, and now in the final night he is with his disciples, he says, let me speak to you plainly about the Father. That ought to be pretty important words, right? When that day comes, you will ask him, you will ask my Father, or our Father, about the Father. When that day comes, I'm sorry, you will ask him in my name, and I do not say that I will ask him on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. He loves you because you love me and have believed that I came from God. Now, if you really believe those words and you stop and ask what that means, it eliminates the position of priest. What church would be majorly affected by that? Catholic Church. Roman Catholic Church especially, but others as well. So these words are so, and let's just be honest, let's not, let's not beat around the bush here. These words are so out of line with what many Christian church, Christians believe that they seem impossible. But these are the words of Jesus at the Last Supper on the day before he died. In Romans 8, Paul agreed with this idea when he said that all three members of the Godhead are on our side. Jim? The Holy Spirit, Romans 8, verses 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit also comes to help us, weak as we are. For we do not know how we ought to pray. The Spirit himself pleads with God for us in groans that words cannot express. And God, who sees our hearts, knows what the thought of the of the Spirit is, because the Spirit pleads with God on behalf of His people and in accordance with His will. Good News Bible. Okay, so that's the, the role of the Holy Spirit. God the Father, you want to take that one, Gordon? Romans eight thirty one to 33. In view of all this, what can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Certainly not God, who did not even keep back His own Son, but offered Him... For us all, he gave us his son. Will he not also freely give us all things? Who will accuse God's chosen people? God himself declares them not guilty. It's from the Kings Bible. God the Son, Jesus Christ, Romans 8.34. Who then will condemn them? Not Christ Jesus, who died, or rather who was raised to life, and is at the right-hand side of God, pleading with him for us. 
So, if all three members of the Godhead are on our side, who's against us? Revelation 12.10 Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now God's salvation has come. Now God has shown His power as King. Now His Messiah has shown His authority. For the one who stood before our God... Now that's exactly this. I'm going to interrupt for a second. That's exactly the situation where we talked, the one who, Je- who Jesus is before the Father, and they want to translate it, he pleads with the Father. No, here is Satan also before our God and accuses our, accuses our brothers and sisters day and night, has been thrown out of heaven. So, Satan is before God, Jesus is before God, and what's Satan doing? Accusing. Satan is the one who is trying to accuse and destroy us. And what is the setting of the judgment in which Satan is trying to accuse us? In what setting does Jesus serve as our advocate and high priest? Well, here we go. Zechariah 3, 1-5. In another vision, the Lord showed me the high priest Joshua, who represented all the children of Israel at that time. That was the work of the high priest. Standing before the angel of the Lord, and there beside Joshua stood Satan, ready to bring an accusation against him. So who's accusing Joshua? Satan. Satan. The angel of the Lord said to Satan, May the Lord condemn you, Satan. May the Lord who loves Jerusalem condemn you. This man is like a stick snatched from the fire. Joshua is standing there wearing filthy clothes. What do the filthy clothes represent? Sin. Sin. Our sins. The angel said to his heavenly attendant, Take away the filthy clothes this man is wearing. Then he said to Joshua, I have taken away your sin and will give you new clothes to wear. He commanded the attendants to put a clean turban on Joshua's head. They did so, and then they put the new clothes on him while the angel of the Lord stood there. So who's involved in this? Satan is accusing. Jesus is defending. The Father and the Holy Spirit are all on our side. So the one one individual who's against us is Satan. Not the Father, not the Holy Spirit, not Jesus. So when Jesus is our advocate and high priest, who is watching and serving as jury in the heavenly court? Tim? Daniel 7, 9 and 10. While I was looking, thrones were put in place. One who sat, excuse me, one who had been living forever sat down on one of the thrones. His clothes were white as snow. His hair was like pure wool. His throne, mounted on fiery wheels, was blazing with fire. And stream, excuse me, and a stream of fire pouring out from it. There were many thousands of people there to serve him, and millions of people stood before him. The court began its session, and the books were opened. Good news, Good Bible. news Bible. So, what have we learned from these biblical passages? All three members of the Godhead are on our side. Satan is the one who's accusing us. The entire angelic host and the rest of the onlooking universe are watching to see who will be their future neighbors and friends. Don't you think they ought to be concerned about that? Human priests were chosen from the tribe of Levi. Jesus, of course, chose to come and became a human being based on God's plan for his life. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. He was Thrive 8, ESP. So what does that mean, Gordon? From the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for Sunday, obedience was new to Jesus, not because he was disobedient, but because he was God. 
As sovereign over the universe, Jesus did not obey anyone. Instead, everyone obeyed him. That should be a simple, <laughs> simple calm. Okay, go ahead. And then from Desire of Ages, Ellen White. Upon Christ as our substitute and surety was laid the iniquity of us all. He was counted a transgressor that he might redeem us from the condemnation of the law. Okay, I'm going to interrupt there for a second. He was counted a transgressor. Does that mean he was a transgressor? He was not. He's treated as if he were a transgressor. Okay, go ahead. The guilt of every descendant of Adam was pressing upon his heart. The wrath of God against sin, the terrible manifestation of his displeasure because of iniquity, filled the soul of his son with consternation. So, I'm going to interrupt again here. So, God is mad as hops. He's just looking for somebody to zap, right? Wrong. Wrong. Okay, what, what do we mean when we talk about the wrath of God? God giving us up if we persist in sin. Okay. So willing to let us have our way. Let's see what Jesus says. Ellen White says, All his life, Christ had been publishing to a fallen world the good news of the Father's mercy and pardoning love. Salvation for the chief of sinners was his theme. But now, with the terrible weight of guilt he bears, he cannot see the Father's reconciling face. What's happened? The next sentence. The withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior in this hour of supreme anguish pierced his heart with a sorrow that can never be fully understood by man. So great was this agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. Okay, I'm going to interrupt for again for a second here. Jesus was so torn apart, psychologically, physically, whatever, in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross because he felt his father withdrawing from him that all that he had been through, the the beating, the the all night long, the unfair trials, the crucifixion, that was like nothing to him. All he could think about was the fact that he was being torn apart from his father because of sin, because of the separation that sin caused between himself and his father. So that's exactly the way we all feel every time we sin, right? Nobody responding to that? Well, that's... Unfortunately not. Unfortunately. Okay, go ahead. Satan, with his fierce temptations, wrung the heart of Jesus. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. That's what he was worried about. Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. It was the sense of sin bringing the Father's wrath upon him as man's substitute that made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. Desire of Ages 753, paragraph 1 and 2. Okay, so here's, I mean, there's a, as the best description I know of anywhere of exactly what happened, what killed him, and so forth. It was this feeling, this sense of separation from his father. 
they had agreed up in heaven before the, this world was established. The everlasting good news was that God would come here, Jesus would come down here and demonstrate the truth about sin, and we have the chance of the opportunity to take advantage of what we we can learn from that. We don't have to, but we can. The death of Jesus on the cross demonstrated to the universe what God meant in the Garden of Eden when he said that sin leads to death. This was a very important demonstration for the benefit of the entire universe. It was not just for us here on this earth. And how is that supposed to impact us? Peter said that we are to become a royal priesthood or the king's priests. What does that imply? What are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be leading other people nearer and nearer to God, right? Isn't that what we said the priest is supposed to teach people about God? Okay, now, let's let's see if we can figure out how Melchizedek fits into all of this. Okay, Genesis fourteen eighteen to 20. And Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem and also priest of the Most High God, brought bread and wine to Abram. I'm going to interrupt for a second here. He was a king. He was also a what? Priest, priest of the Most High God. Okay, so here is somebody who's not from the tribe of Levi. He's not from the tribe of Judah. But he's a king and a priest. So guess he's guess who he's a forerunner of? Christ. Yeah. King of so, Salem then mean peace. King king of peace. Salem means peace. And then Melchizedek, uh, king of righteousness. Yeah, exactly. It's good to go. So not only was this was Melchizedek not of the tribe of Levi or Judah, but he was way before yeah. either of them were born. Yep. He was a contemporary of Abraham. Yes, exactly. And okay, he Myra. brought bread and wine to Abram, blessed him, and said, May the Most High God who made heaven and earth bless Abram. May the Most High God who gave you victory over your enemies be praised. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all of the loot that he had recovered. Good News Bible. Okay, well, Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. Jesus was also both. That places him in the order of Melchizedek. But Melchizedek was sinful while Jesus was not. And what else do we know about Melchizedek? Very little. We do not know anything about his parents or his descendants, nor do we know anything about his birth or even his death. It was Christ, and now I'm quoting from Ellen White, Selected Messages, Book 1, 409. It was Christ that spoke through Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek was not Christ, but he was the voice of God in the world, the representative of the Father. And all through the generations of the past, Christ has spoken. Christ has led his people and has been the light of the world. From Selected Messages, Book 1. So in Hebrews 7, 11, and 18, 19, Paul began to describe the differences between ordinary priests and Jesus Christ as our high priest. Let's take a moment to look at those places very quickly. It was on the basis of the Levitical priesthood that the law was given to the people of Israel. Now, if the work of the Levitical priests had been perfect, 
there would have been no need for a different kind of priest to appear, one who was in the priestly order of Melchizedek, not of Aaron. So now we had a group of priests, we had a group of kings, but now we have someone who's superior because he's both king and priest. The old rule then is set aside because it was weak and useless for the law of Moses I'm sorry, for the law of Moses could not make anything perfect, and now a better hope has been provided through which we come near to God. So, in Hebrews 7 and Hebrews 10, 1 to 3 and 10 to 14, he pointed out that those animal sacrifices on the old, in the Old Testament could never take away sin. They were only a symbol pointing forward to the future death of Jesus. And the most important thing they taught us was that sin leads to death. So how did the sacrifice of Christ cleanse sinners of their sin? Because that's mine. Hebrews 10, 1 to 4 and 10 to 14. The Jewish law is not a full and faithful model of the real things. It is only a faint outline of the good things to come. The same sacrifices are offered forever, year after year. How can the law then, by means of these sacrifices, make perfect the people who come to God? If the people worshiping God had really been purified from their sins, they would not feel guilty of sin anymore, obviously because they wouldn't be sinning anymore, and all sacrifices would stop. As it is, however, the sacrifices serve year after year to remind people of their sins. So what do the sacrifices do? Remind us of our Remind sin. people of their sins. For the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. Dropping down to verse 10. Because Jesus Christ did what God wanted him to do, we are all purified from sin by the offering that he made of his own body once and for all. If we learn, now my words, if we can learn the lessons we need to learn from the life and death of Jesus, we will realize that we can choose to either live a life the way he lived and live forever, or we will die the death he died and be death dead forever. Every Jewish priest performs his services every day and offers the same sacrifices many times. But these sacrifices can never take away sins. Christ, however, offered one sacrifice for sins, an offering that is effective forever, and then he sat down at the right-hand side of God. There he now waits until God puts his enemies as a footstool under his feet. With one sacrifice, then, he has made perfect forever those who are purified from sin. So how does the sacrifice of Christ make people, quote, perfect, end quote, or mature? The death of Christ, otherwise known as the second death, which was a direct result of sin, teaches us some very important lessons. The life and death of Jesus give us a choice. Let's look at it again. One, we can choose to follow his example as far as possible, allowing him to work in our lives and we will live forever. Or two, we can choose our selfish ways, follow the example of Satan, and die the death he died, that Christ died, separated from God eternally because we do not have divinity to raise ourselves. Think of all the animal sacrifices offered in the Old Testament. David one time offered 30,000 sheep as he was bringing the that, the altar up to temple. Was uh, he in also Jerusalem. dancing naked? Yeah. 
We don't know he was dancing completely naked, but anyway. The story comes across. Yes. They pointed forward and they pointed back. They teach us that sin leads to death, even the death of an innocent victim. So what is the main difference between all those animal sacrifices and the sacrifice of Jesus? The life and death of Jesus demonstrated to the universe the falsehood of Satan's accusations and questions about God. Animal sacrifices serve to remind people that sin leads to death, but they also pointed forward to the death of Jesus. The death which Jesus died was a second death, which results from sin. And I'm going to ask you a question now. How many people have died, or how many individuals have died the second death so far? One and only one. One and only one, and that was Jesus himself. No animal sacrifice could fulfill those requirements. So, Jesus is offered as a better sacrifice. And he will live forever to teach his followers the implications of that life and death. We do not need to continue offering useless sacrifices. So that means we don't have to do anything, right? Wrong. Do you wish we were back offering animal sacrifices? Maybe that's what those Israelites were doing in their little corners of their property, just sitting there. I won't want to do anything for fear I make a mistake. Yeah. Imagine going to the gateway of the temple, calling a priest to come over and help you, bringing your lamb, confessing your sins on the head of the lamb, cutting its throat. The police, the, the police, the priest gathers the blood goes through the ritual process, burns portions of the animal, etc., etc., every time you wanted to have your sins forgiven. Mm. I could never have enough lambs. <laughs> okay. And they could only do that after traveling a ways to get to Jerusalem, to the temple. In Hebrews 8, 10 to 12, which is quoted from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, Paul tells us, how that will impact us. Jim, I think that's yours. Quoting from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, Now this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel in the days to come, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. None of them will... have to teach their fellow citizens or say to their fellow say to their fellow citizens know the lord for they shall they will all know me from the least to the greatest i will forgive their sins and i will no longer remember their wrongs good news bible okay now there's some strange language in there let's see if we can clarify it here real quick like who is it that makes the changes in our lives if we if we allow him, it's the Father. It's the, it's God. What does God say? I will put my laws in their minds. Do we put the laws in our minds? No, God does it and write them on their hearts. Now, so it's God. I will be their God, and will be, and they will be my people. But even more strange than that is the last couple of sentences. I will forgive their sins. Okay, now that's not hard. We understand something about how that works and will no longer remember their wrongs. Now hold on, wait, 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 wait. 
I thought God was omniscient. What is I'm om- going to bring it up again. What does omniscient mean? In the computer, you just don't, don't have to refer to it again. It's yeah. pretty simple. So, in addition, this is, this is very different than what many people teach. Many people have the idea that when you commit a sin, an angel is there writing on the, in the records in heaven and that so forth. And, and then, if you kneel down beside your bed at night and you confess your sin, someone comes along and wipes that out. How does that God put that stuff into your mind? Now, based on what you just said, how, how, what's the mechanism? Well, the mechanism is we open our minds to think about Him. Well, what if, we, we, what if for those that don't want to, it, it's of no effect, right? Yeah. So basically what you've done, you've shut off the, yeah. the, the channel of, of healing. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Okay. So, so there's no, nothing arbitrary on God's part. He just says, I'll offer you education. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I Jesus is a and teacher healing. and not a, well, education, but is to heal your way of thinking. Yeah. So, so that's, uh, exactly. to correct the false concepts we've had or been raised with about God. So, as Jim has suggested, uh, when God says, I will no longer remember their wrongs, it doesn't mean that he doesn't know. He hasn't forgotten anything. There's nothing wrong with his memory, but he chooses not to think about it. It's like having something, how many millions of megabytes are stored on people's computers that they, they never access. You know, they mentioned earlier about the process theology. You know, they, they, many of their, uh, their approaches, God couldn't know the future because if he did, Would, you wouldn't be free. Yeah. They, they don't, they, they think in finite terms, they uh, impose that upon the character of the, of the infinite one, mm-hmm. and uh, a finite being telling him, telling me and defining what the infinite does, and it has a capacity to do. I mean, it's, yeah. it's nonsense. When God appointed his son Jesus to be a high priest, he did it with a vow which cannot be taken back. Thus Jesus has become a surety or a guarantee for the salvation or healing of all who by faith follow him and become like more like him. Let us look now at the five characteristics of Jesus mentioned specifically in Hebrews 7.26. Re- reading from Hebrews 7.26, <clears throat> Jesus then is the high priest that meets our needs. He is holy. He has no fault or sin in him. He has been set apart from sinners and raised above the heavens. Good okay. news Bible. There's our five things. Why don't we put a, uh, Exodus 19.6 in there. I'll make you a kingdom of priests. Yeah. Okay. Well, they quoted uh, second, First Peter 1.26. We've already quoted. It's a direct quote from Exodus 19. Exodus 19. Yeah. So Jesus was holy, and Hebrews 2.18 says that now he can help those who are tempted because he himself was tempted and suffered. Okay? Does that mean that God the Father or God the Holy Spirit cannot help us? Or at least cannot help us as much because they have never, they were never tempted? I mean, this is completely nonsense. Hebrews 4.15 suggests that because he is our priest, he can feel sympathy for our weaknesses. What we're really saying is that we can understand him better. We can think about him better because we can, we can see at least the records of what, what, he, what his life was like. Does that mean that only Jesus Christ can really sympathize with us in our weaknesses? The Father cannot? The Holy Spirit cannot? 
That's complete nonsense. Jesus was undefiled, moving on. He remained pure without fault throughout his entire life on this earth. And of course, as we have moved before, Satan says that's impossible. No human being can live a whole life here on this earth without sinning. Well, Jesus did it. That made him the perfect sacrifice. If Jesus had sinned in any way, he would not have been able to fully and completely represent God before the onlooking universe and before us. Satan's claim that it is impossible for any human being to live on this earth without sinning would have been proven true. Would that mean that God would have to surrender to Satan in the great controversy? There's a question to think about for a while. Jesus was separated from sinners. This was true because of the kind of life he lived. But it was especially true when he ascended to heaven. Thus Jesus was exalted above the heavens. Although he was fully human, he was not a sinful human. However, because he was fully human, he can be our perfect example. Notice these words from the Bible study for Thursday. Quote, Then should the process of his holiness being credited to us by faith help assure us of salvation? What does it mean to say that? It was Satan's purpose to bring about an eternal separation between God and man. But it was Christ we become more closely united, but in Christ we become more closely united to God than if we had ever, if we had never fallen. In taking our nature, the Savior was, has bound himself to humanity by a tie that is never to be broken. This is the pledge that God will fulfill, the pledge that God will fulfill his word. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. God has adopted human nature in the person of his son, and has carried the same into the highest heaven. It is the Son of Man who shares the throne of the universe. It is the Son of Man whose name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, from Isaiah 9.6. The I Am is the daysman between God and humanity, lying his hand upon both. He who is holy harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, is not ashamed to call us brethren. Hebrews okay, 7, now, okay. 26. Let me interrupt there for a second. We have a perfect God up here who is sinless, perfect, omnipotent, omnipresent, you know, all those things, omniscient. And down here, they're us. We are, we're, we're none of those things. We are sinful. We are unholy. We are... Everything's wrong with us. So, there's a bridge between what's up there and down here. Only Christ has that ability, and this is described in other places as the mystic ladder that that, uh, Jacob saw when he was sleeping on that pillow out there. God, he can, he can reach up and put his arm around God, if you will, because he's perfect and undefiled. And he can reach down and put his arm around us because he was fully human. Um, we've, you know, we understand that, but I hope we can understand yeah. it anyway. Yeah, it's, it's a concept that we have to really 
think about. In Christ, the family of earth and the family of heaven are bound together. Christ glorified Christ glorified his other brother. Is our brother. Is Christ glorified. glorified is our brother. Okay. That wasn't making sense to me. Heaven is enshrined in humanity, and humanity is enfolded in the bosom of an infinite love. Ellen G. White, Desire of Ages, pages 25 and 26. Okay, now, let's be very clear. Zechariah 3, 1 to 5. What did we learn from Zechariah 3, 1 to 5? What's happening in the judgment right now as we speak? Satan is accusing. Satan is accusing. Jesus. Jesus is defending. The Father is supervising, if you will. Who else is there? The universe. The entire onlooking universe. The case is going on. This passage makes it clear that Jesus speaks on our behalf in heaven because we are constantly being accused by Satan. When Satan accuses God, he has to lie. When he accuses us, he just has to tell the truth, unfortunately. We are not being accused by the Father or the Holy Spirit. And Jesus turns to Satan and says, May the Lord condemn you, Satan, Zechariah 3.3. As a result of this entire plan of salvation, Christ has united himself more closely to the human race than ever before. Hebrews 5, 1 to 4. Every high priest chosen from among mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is subject to weakness. And because of this, he must offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for those of the people. Now, this is talking about human high priests, of course. And one does not presume to take this honor because but takes it only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And that's from the New Revised Standard Version. In all, 12 qualities of a high priest are listed in Hebrews 5, 1 to 4. First, the job description. Every high priest is one, chosen from among mortals. Two, selected on their behalf. Three, is in charge of things pertaining to God. Four, is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Five, four sins. Next come the personal dispositions. Six, he is able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. And seven, is subject to weakness. Furthermore, eight, he must offer sacrifices for his own sins. Nine, as well as for those of the people. Finally, the issue of vocation. Ten, one does not presume to take this honor. Eleven, but takes it only when called by God. And twelve, just as Aaron was called from our Adult Teachers Sabbath School Bible Study Guide, pages 80 and 81. Our Bible Study Guide picks out four of these characteristics as being especially important, describing Christ's qualifications for his job. Now, remember we said back earlier that our Bible Study Guide is going to try to learn everything we can about the human high priest and see how that might apply to Christ. We have suggested that we're going to look at from the heavenly perspective. We're going to say, we know what's going on up there. How does that apply to what we know about the high priest? So we're going to see some differences in approach here. Our Bible study guide talks us about these four approaches. 
One, the high priest was chosen from among his own people. No one else could take his place with the God, without God specifically approving. Consider A, number 16, 15 to 40, the story of Cordath and Byron, and B, 2 Second Chronicles 26, 16 to 21, the time when King Isaiah tried to offer sacrifices in the place of the priests. Two, the high priest, as Hebrews describes him, is a person who is able to restrain his own emotions when dealing with those who are ignorant and go astray. Uh, the high priest carried on the ordinary activities of a regular priest, 364 days of the year, but he alone went into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, 1 to 25. And he carried the Urim and the Thummim on that holy breastplate. That's another thing that the high priest did. Three, every merely human high priest, no matter how good he was, was nevertheless himself subject to weakness and needed to offer sacrifices for his own sins. As we have already mentioned, the high priest needed to be appointed by God himself. So, then Paul went on to describe in Hebrews 2 that Jesus, having been made lower than the angels for a period of time, managed to destroy Satan's power over death. Satan had claimed that anyone who sinned and then died belonged permanently to him. He also claimed that sin does not lead to death and that human beings and angels naturally will live forever. All these claims were proven false by the life and death of Jesus. So, is our spiritual journey, it is in our spiritual journey day by day. Are there times when we need to be held accountable by a third party? Is there any such thing as a static Christian? Or is that a contradiction in terms? What have we learned from this lesson, even though there's been some parts of it a little bit complicated, concerning the contradictory views about the work of Christ and the heavenly sanctuary right now? I hope you've had the insight that it's better to look at what's happening in heaven and apply that to us instead of the other way around. Let's pray. Our kind and loving Father, we thank you for these insights we have been given by your famous prophets and apostles from long ago. We look forward to the day when we can sit down with Paul and with Daniel and with Zechariah and and learn from them what these things all meant to them in their day. But for now, we have their words and we can apply them to our lives. Help us to make every day an opportunity to open ourselves to to the work of all three members of the Godhead to influence us to be better and holier and more like you so that we may witness to all around us as our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.